You're listening to the Oodles of Marketing Podcast, where two brothers, not brothers, wage war, debate peacefully, against the pitfalls of digital marketing. That part is accurate. Here are your hosts, Mark and Ryan Hughes. Today's guest is Brian O'Loughlin. His background includes omnichannel marketing efforts across a variety of Fortune 500 consumer brands. Today, Brian's a senior paid social media director at Empower, a Cincinnati-based agency leading all things social for these accounts. We're excited to nerd out with Brian on all things social, including pontificating about the meltdown currently happening at Twitter. Welcome back to another episode of Oodles of Marketing. Today, we're with Brian O'Loughlin, Senior Director of Paid Social at Empower, also an agency lifer. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about Brian's background, but today's episode is really going to jump in and focus on social trends specifically. There's an awful lot of stuff going on in the world as it relates to social. Twitter is no exception to that rule, uh, and we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about uh social as it relates to current trends, past trends, and where we think the market's going to be in the next 12, 24 months. So welcome, Brian. Hello, hello, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, conversation. I appreciate you guys bringing me in for this. should be fun. Absolutely. So Brian, you are self-proclaimed sand volleyball enthusiast and beer connoisseur. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's important that enthusiast is kind of the key term there. Certainly not uh, a self-proclaimed uh, sand volleyball expert, uh, but I do like to play a couple leagues per year in the summertime. Uh, actually, Seth, uh, one of the producers of the podcast, is really helpful as far as uh, he and his he and his what he and his I'm sorry girlfriend Amy play on our team as well. Uh, nice. And we definitely have a lot of fun out there in the summertime. Um, do host a sand volleyball tournament every year. So I'd love to get you guys out there next summer, the Pat O Classico. We just had our first year, uh, last year it's benefiting the esophageal cancer awareness association. So, uh, yeah, pretty into it in the summertime. Try to play two or three nights a week as well. Um, but yeah, love that beer connoisseur is more of a, I'd say I'm your every man as far as beer connoisseur goes. I'm a, I'm out there pretty often hopping around the local spots. So uh, if you see me at a, at a local brewery, like the Braxton and OTR is probably my favorite spot to hang out. I live right nearby. So if you see me, uh, I'll buy you a beer. Love to hang out sometime. Nice. Let me take you up on that. As a, as a fellow sure. Cincinnati guy, I feel like you have to enjoy decent beer or you just may have lost your right to claim yourself as a Cincinnatian. I don't know. Yeah, one of those I would things. agree with that. Uh, so one more thing that was interesting about you as, as we were preparing for the podcast is that you just recently attended Ad Week in New York City uh, in the month of October. Uh, what what kind of takeaways did you have from from attending that? It seems like a pretty sweet, sweet deal. I did. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of kind of context there. Ad Week in New York City, uh, definitely one of the bigger conferences as far as like, I feel like there are so many digital marketing conferences that happen nowadays. Um, you know, they bring people in from all over different speakers and things like that. Um, this one is is certainly focused on a there are quite a few topics at hand, right? So you can go, what I really like about Adweek is that there are a multitude of different tracks that you can take. So you can go and try to pick up as much as possible about creative. You can go and specifically try to learn about, you know, the data and uh, and sort of analytics track, or you can do sort of the media track. Uh, I certainly jumped back and forth between the data and analytics track and the uh, the media buying and media planning track for the most part. Uh, there are a couple different, you know, different tracks outside of that that you can go on as well. Um, I think some of the key takeaways that I really appreciated the most that I feel like are going to be really useful for for small businesses that might be planning uh, for for you know the next the next fiscal as well. Um, I think bespoke creative is something we're going to see becomes more and more important for media buyers and you know creative especially across social for the next several uh, the next several quarters as well. And by that I mean specifically having creative that isn't just reformatted from another platform or channel. So if you're 
running a social media campaign across Meta. You're not just taking, you know, your stories from Instagram or your stories from Facebook and then running those on TikTok. You're building out creative that is more specific for that platform. Um, I know, you know, one of the more interesting uh, sort of lectures that we listened to was with the head of Uber's social team, their paid social team. And they'd found that there was a pretty significant increase in performance uh, when they when they started using just bespoke TikTok creative instead of using sort of uh, optimized assets that came through from other platforms. Um, I think we're going to see a huge uptick in sort of the creator marketplace over the next couple of uh, quarters as well. So more specifically, I mean, I think that like user generated content is going to be really important to work into your creative mix. Um, especially when it comes to testing things out on the platform. Testing is something that, you know, you certainly hear quite a bit about, especially at these conferences, but I feel like that's kind of the cost of doing business. I, I feel like you walk away with like test and learn, and that's kind of a given. But to me, it seems like, um, you know, the most pragmatic things that you can walk away with as a, as a business looking to create or uh, plan for the upcoming fiscal year are probably around uh, having that bespoke creative and trying to work in some sort of influencer or creator-based content to your media mix as well. Uh, because, you know, generally, uh, the majority of the brands that we work with see a pretty significant enhanced uh, performance when they use those influencer creator uh, assets instead of using the assets that came through that are, you know, just from their owned and earned channels. And, and what kind of what you're picking on here without saying it directly is that brands that skip the organic route are doing themselves an extreme disservice, right? So you deal in large part with paid with paid social in today's world, but the organic side, be that through, you know, some sort of paid activation with some something like an influencer or the stuff that just lives on its own, those things still hold hold weight and hold value um, in the social marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, organic as well, when I talk about like the cost of doing business, it's one of those things that it, it's almost a prerequisite to working with uh, a client in a, in a paid social capacity, because so much of what these platforms do when they uh, take sort of engagement into consideration as they, you know, and not to get too in the weeds here, but like as your your ads are in market or your ads are uh, at the auction competing with other advertisers who maybe do have really strong engagement metrics from their organic pages. Uh, nine times out of 10, you know, they're going to take that engagement into consideration. And let's say you have the same, what we would call like a bid cap uh, strategy. You have the same sort of audiences that you're targeting. You're looking at very similar things from an auction dynamic standpoint. Uh, if they have an advertiser that already has really strong engagement across the organic channels, they're going to use that advertiser or that advertiser is going to win out at the auction as well. Uh, because ultimately what these platforms are trying to do from a paid perspective is deliver um, the best possible uh, experience for the user, right? Or at least, at the very least, that's what the the platform algorithms are are trained to do, or are trying, or, you know, claim to be doing. Um, so, from an organic standpoint, oftentimes, you know, that's kind of the base. That's like the foundation of the pyramid when it comes to self actualization, as it relates to advertising and paid and all that stuff. Uh, having a really clear and robust communication strategy across organic is really important. And then once you feel like you have that sort of more content marketing base, you would want to move into paid, uh, you know, to really take that to the next level in terms of reach and and objectives and what you're trying to achieve and everything like that. So what have you seen for so for brands that are out there that maybe they don't have the the organic strength at this stage and maybe they're they're attempting the paid route what's what's the advice of getting this right if you have maybe something mediocre in flight or maybe it's something that used to work very very well but as as we all know the game has changed uh, with what works in social but not just what works today but what is likely to work in the next 24 months what what do you think the 
the most logical path forward needs to be for them. Yeah, I think um, hedging your bets as far as like your level of effort is a really important way to do things, right? So like trying to mitigate that by like when you're creating content, for example, if you're if you're uh, making content for your organic channels, repurposing some of that content across your ads or, or making content that works really well in the ad space is a really nice way to sort of have your creative efforts be a little bit more optimized instead of like, you know, because one thing that is true about organic is that it takes a pretty considerable amount of effort to... Um, to try to create and develop all these assets. You're doing you know, community management, you're building out these content calendars, you have these content pillars. But if nobody, if you don't get any eyeballs on that content, then how much value are you getting out of all that effort that you put in? So I think you know, one really important thing for brands to think about is how much of that content that they're creating they can use uh, and, and like optimize towards that by you know, running a paid campaign behind the top performing asset, turning that into an ad. Um, and when I say like, you know, really we talk about having bespoke content across different platforms, and how important it is to have platforms, platform specific content, especially on a channel or a platform uh, like TikTok. Um, I think there are opportunities there where you can still kind of, um, you know, avoid the the opportunity cost of, uh, you know, having an entire team that's devoting all their time to paid social asset creation or paid asset creation by taking that content and reformatting it appropriately for that other uh, for the paid sort of aspects of that same channel. Um, I think, you know, one thing we talk about quite a bit with our advertisers, especially when it comes to like content creation, um, is the 80, 20 rule. So 80% of your content that's created being more goodwill based content. Um, and that's because largely when your audience is inter interacting with you from an organic standpoint, these are people who are already familiar with your brand, right. Or they're they're trying to, um, get more, maybe more specific value of a particular product or a particular aspect of your brand and 20% of your content being more sales or product focused. I think what that lets you do is really speak to your core consumers a little bit more fluently about like what those products, uh, what the benefits of those products are, or, you know, why they should consider purchasing again, depending on sort of what your vertical is. But 80% of that content being goodwill content, meaning that like a large portion of your content is just giving value to the end user. It's not something where you're trying to promote a particular product. You're not trying to make a sale. You're trying to give value to the users that are already interacting with you the most because largely from an organic standpoint, you're not building as much brand awareness as you are when you're using the paid efforts where you're getting your eyeballs in front of people who haven't necessarily engaged with your brand before, if that makes sense. So I would kind of think about the, the role that organic plays in your brand journey prior to doing any of this stuff, right? That's a really important kind of foundational aspect too is like, where does organic fit into your media mix? And then based on that, kind of tailor your content creation or engagement efforts uh, to fit into where you're reaching people the most when they're the most receptive at that particular time, if that makes sense. You know, you said the 80-20 rule. We've we've called it four deposits for every one withdrawal. Same math, right? Uh, and it's, it's mm -hmm. sort of that way to make sure that you're giving to your community far more often than you're than you're attempting to take because that puts a negative taste in in your potential consumer's mouth. And, you know, I, I think that applies not just across organic. In many ways, I also think it applies across paid. I mean, how many times have you been targeted by a brand that's maybe not doing social advertising exactly the right way? And so they think you're much more ready than you really are. So rather than being helpful and being, you know, getting those that same content in front of more eyeballs, they're, they're all about the sale because that's how you prove ROI, right? In the, in the most direct way. So I think there's, there's something to be learned there as well. Uh, across, you know, really the ecosystem as a whole, be it, you know, or organic as it as it relates to Google, uh, or organic slash paid as it relates to to social. Uh, being helpful is the name of the game in modern marketing. 
Yeah, I agree. I think more often than not, you run into brands that kind of get that one a little, uh, they fuck that up a little bit, right? They get yeah. a little confused <laughs> as to uh, how to put their best foot forward when it comes to trying to make sure that that brand experience is, is uh, aligned with what the customer journey looks like. Um, and that's definitely something we work quite a bit with our clients on too, is like trying to get them to think about not just uh, what the story that they're trying to tell the the audience, right? Because too many brands are are sort of story first, which I think the story obviously is super important part of that, but also you have to be audience agnostic. Uh, and that's definitely how, you know, uh, if I'm planning a paid social campaign, for example, I might have a really strong hunch that the audience is on a particular platform based on what I know about the vertical and the particular, you know, type of product that we're trying to, to promote or even outside of product, the type of brand that we're trying to promote. But anything that we do from a planning standpoint, has got to have some deep research and data behind it. So we would typically do some sort of audience exercise to figure out exactly where they're spending their time, what platforms are they over indexing for. And then from there, we would say, when are they going to be the most receptive to this particular story? with that for that audience and what is the right message at each stage in the journey, right? So being audience first is really a, a kind of key to um, adopting, you know, a framework that's going to work across organic or paid. Think less about what your brand is doing and more about what your audience uh, wants from not just a brand, uh, but really what they're, what they're on the platform for. What are they trying to achieve by pulling up their Facebook feed? Like, you know, are we looking at a B2B client who wants to run on Facebook? There are places where that works, but it's much less likely because that audience isn't in the headspace to receive that type of message. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting with regard to that is kind of a narrative that I've been discussing internally with our team is the difference between um, platform sentiments and actual data, right? And it can be really challenging to find, truthfully, there's nowhere to get the 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 perfect data. But, you know, when you ask folks, where do you spend your time, right? A lot of that survey data to try to figure out, you know, where clients are, or where um, folks are spending time in social media versus where they're actually spending time uh, can be really interesting. I did just like a, a simple experiment with even myself where I, I kind of answered the the survey of where I spend time and what social media platforms I prefer and those sorts of things, as would be asked of me by a survey and then I pulled up the screen time on my phone and validated where I'm actually spending my time. Uh, and they were holistically sure it was very different. different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what that told me is like the worst way to figure out where your customer lives is to ask them, <laughs> which, which feels very counterintuitive. Um, but sometimes they just don't know. Right. Uh, you know, what I found in my journey was I spend more time on Facebook than I think I did. And uh, after extrapolating and, you know, pontificating on why that might be, you realize that there are different avenues within Facebook, like marketplace and groups and those sorts of things that I'm spending my time in. I don't spend much time on my feed, but I do, I do spend more time than I thought within Facebook. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, one point that you made is is really important about like you're spending time on these other uh, sort of properties that Facebook owns that maybe you didn't really think of as being the traditional newsfeed kind of format, which is why you have Meta. And when I say Meta, and I'm sure you guys are familiar, but just in yeah. case anybody in the audience isn't sure, uh, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and however many million other apps they actually uh, own as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they're coming out with more and more placements all the time from a paid standpoint for you to actually build out your advertising across those particular 
those particular placements where like someone like you, Ryan, is going to spend the majority of their time on like a marketplace, for example, how can we get a placement in front of Ryan because he's not looking at his newsfeed ever. Um, largely, or gather data that can inform that, right? So they know 100%. if I'm spending time in marketplace and I'm looking at cars, as a for instance, well, now they know I'm potentially in the market or interested in cars or vehicles or something like that and can kind of tailor and shift advertising uh, targets based on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, to that same point, I think like, you know, when we think about audience planning across the different platforms and figuring out where that audience is, it's, it is large part to your point, like there are so many different ways to understand who's, whether it's like global web index, for example, or these different tools you might use to plan for your audiences and figure out which platforms that they're on. Um, I think one of the easiest ways that, you know, particular, uh, agencies might have access to would be to go straight to the source and try to get an understanding of monthly active users, which I'm sure you guys do a bit of that as well to understand the scale of that mm -hmm. audience on any particular platform. Um, one of the things that we do <coughs> from a planning standpoint that I think, you know, um, I'm obviously a little bit biased, but I think it's fairly unique, um, is trying to get an understanding outside of like, you know, just the tools that we have access to from our planning department, having access to individual reps from different platforms or teams that we can talk to as well, because oftentimes, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of our reps. I love working with them. Every platform rep is, is even more biased than, you know, your standard brand employee, right? They're going to tell us, I, for example, you know, we work with platforms all the time that I know to be a particular stage in the funnel. Uh, I mean, when I say I know, I mean, uh, in my my experience, sure. um, they've been much more beneficial for brands at a particular stage in the funnel. And they're going to tell us all the time, right, why they're well poised to do X, Y, Z outside of the things that we're already doing. And I just know from a customer journey standpoint, that that's not necessarily the case. Um, <clears throat> I think building those, a lot of the times, the easiest thing a small brand can do is just build those audiences within the platform to try to understand the scale. Right. So like and a lot of the things I want to talk about today as well are like things that can kind of help smaller scale advertisers win in a world where you're competing with really big brands that are spending millions and millions of dollars every month. Um, and I think like having the expertise and, and the know how to log into these platforms, build your own ad account and then scale your audiences and try to get an understanding of what that looks like is really beneficial to you outside of trying to do that research with a third party tool that, to your point, Ryan, might not be as uh, authentic or might not be as accurate as we think as far as like. Uh, a, a real reflection of what people are actually doing every day on their phones. Because one thing that is real to some extent is the, um, is like when I log into meta and I build an audience and it's going to tell me what that projected audience size is, it doesn't, it doesn't behoove the platform to misreport that data because ultimately I'm going to spend my dollars elsewhere if that's not the case. Right. Um, so you know, I think being hands-on keyboard about that and trying to scale those audiences and understand what they look like is important for anybody, whether that's, you know, a Fortune 100 advertiser or uh, a smaller brand that's trying to understand where to spend their $200 a month or whatever that that budget might look like. Um, it's really important for them to know where they're going to hit their largest audience. And I mean, to be frank, nine times out of 10, that's still going to be meta, uh, a meta-based yeah. property um, because they still rule the roost as much as, much as things are changing and things are progressing. And other platforms are blowing up. And I mean, TikTok obviously is right now, I would say like if we're if I'm spending if I'm spending ten dollars on advertising, depending on the brand, this is obviously changes quite a bit, but yeah. I would say seven dollars and fifty cents of that at least are going on meta in most cases. Mm -hmm. And then you know, because the point of diminishing return is so much higher on a plat on meta than it is on these other platforms where like you're just it's so hard to tap out your audience. 
Uh, and that's the sheer scale of, you know, to your point, Ryan, as well, like people don't think they're using Facebook all the time, but if they're not using Facebook, oftentimes they're using Instagram. And, I think there's, you know, right. And there's you're, two you're interesting kind of points. Both of those. Okay. Uh, um, I was going to say the other thing I think is fundamentally different between the two platforms is not only, you know, user base. When you look at things like TikTok and Twitter and um, some of the others, the they have a lot of users, but they, Snap would be another perfect example of like kind of the rise and fall. Um, none of them have hit the targeting in the way that Meta has. And, you know, Meta has kind of followed in large part Google's success with uh, Google advertising and those sorts of things, which obviously is not social, but, you know, allowing for that like really granular, highly targeted um, ways to build relevant ads. Um, you know, we do some TikTok advertising with some clients and, and um, Twitter and those sorts of things. And one of the challenges is always like the targeting criteria is not, you can't get super tight, right? There's uh, you, which doesn't make you as an advertiser, doesn't make you f always feel as comfortable unless you're, you know, uh, working on a, a brand awareness campaign or something that is interesting to a larger audience. Um, it, it kind of makes it a, a less desirable platform to spend your money. For sure. I was actually just on TikTok ads just before this call, uh, doing some, some reporting for a client as well. Um, I think TikTok is, is kind of well poised to be able to solve that a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, I think, you know, the big benefit, and you kind of touched on this a second ago as well, is like Google, I'm sorry, Meta is following Google everyone else is following Meta. So all the social platforms are essentially trying to mimic exactly the, you know, from a UI standpoint, even they're trying to make their platform as, as similar to Meta as possible, just from an ad setup stand perspective. Mm -hmm. I think what you will find, like as you get into more targeted niches, is that some of these platforms have really nice solutions for reaching really niche communities or audiences that Meta can't offer. But depending on your brand or your vertical, it's really difficult to be able to see the value in that when the scale and to your point, the targeting capabilities are just so vast on Meta. But like on Snapchat, for example, um, for a long time, and they still continue to do this, you know, for certain advertisers, um, you're able to use uh, quite a few third party audiences as almost added value to activating on Snap. So if you're running a paid social campaign on Snapchat, you can uh, use, you know, audiences from different vendors that will say, you know, people who purchased XYZ within the last 30 days, I can target them specifically. And that's because they have partnerships with these different, you know, whether that's Oracle or Nielsen or whoever else it might be, they have these partnerships that allow you to access those lists that you typically would pay a premium for, right? Mm -hmm. So depending on the advertiser, um, I think it kind of, your stage in the, your, what your journey looks like, there are value to looping in platforms like that when they have these really niche targets. I know we have quite a few clients, for example, who might have um, at a particular stage in the journey, there's a huge benefit to us being able to reach them if they purchased XYZ within the last two weeks, because mm -hmm. the, you know, they're so likely to renew whatever that particular purchase is. Um, but I think from a sheer volume standpoint and just from an advertising standpoint, when it comes to smaller, small to mid-sized brands, the majority of what you want to do should be focused on meta. Um, a, you know, a lot of the, just to be very candid as well, like a lot of the benefits of these third-party audiences aren't available to advertisers that aren't spending a certain amount of money. Um, but again, you know, depending on what, what that budget looks like for you, 
I would say reach out to these platforms if you're an advertiser. Try to get in touch with someone who can who can uh, talk to you about the added value or the benefits that come with activating for the first time on some of these platforms. And the barrier of entry is really high. And you know, a lot of this is relative, but like the barrier of entry for your brand might not particularly be too insane. Like, let's say you're going to spend five to ten thousand dollars over the course of the next month or two on advertising. Um, there are a lot of these platforms that will give you an added value, uh, like a coupon to activate because they're trying to take market share away from Meta. And, you know, again, Meta is our, one of our, we're probably our most, uh, the, the partner that we spend the most with, but it, they're not as likely to offer these sort of added value benefits that you can get from other platforms. Um, but I think like outside of that as well, you know, there are benefits to, for example, a Reddit where, um, most of the time you're going to be mid to bottom and again love reddit we advertise a lot with with reddit uh but quite a bit of what we're doing is going to be more mid or bottom funnel focused on reddit and that's largely because if you think about the communities on reddit uh that's when you're doing a quick search to figure out which bicycle you should buy for example or like when you're logging in to to figure out and i mean i'm i'm a what we would call like a ghost user on reddit i don't even have a username i get on reddit on google and then i pull up whatever that thread is and i read it but i'm still susceptible to the advertising on a particular uh, Reddit thread or a Reddit community, if that advertising is highly relevant, um, and a lot of the like placements you can buy through those types of advertisers are going to be really relevant or really, um, I guess, the more like thumb stopping placements where you can look at you know an entire takeover of a whole Reddit community based on whatever that particular uh, topic is that you were trying to read about at the time. And if it's a really relevant brand, then that's more useful to us as you know advertisers than us blasting our message out with the same amount of money on meta where it's a really saturated market and people are less likely to be as mid or bottom funnel for example in those particular contexts again meta is really full funnel all the platforms have benefits uh, and a lot of them you know are are full funnel as well uh, but that's one of the things where like it's you kind of want to figure out the sweet spot between what's the value and what's the effectiveness uh, or what's the efficiency and what's the effectiveness, which is kind of what we're constantly talking about with our with our clients as well. How do you how do you handle attribution? Uh, so you, you just talked about each of these platforms does have a capability to be full funnel, but they don't they don't always talk to one another. And not every agency partner and not every client. Well, you can make them talk to each other, which is where I was going. So not every agency partner and not every client has either the the appetite or has the the technical capabilities to set up the infrastructure to to create attribution in a way that is meaningful. So how do you how do you advise clients that are on that journey of like, hey, I run a ton of stuff across a ton of stuff. How do I know that I'm getting the value out of it? Because they all claim credit yeah, individually. Sure. Yeah, I think it's falling. Oh, sorry, just to go ahead. Player a little bit into that. Yeah. Um, you know, without falling victim to two things. One is the um, last touch only attribution, right? Just looking at who was responsible for the last, the final click that led to sale. Um, in addition to kind of getting caught up in uh, data validation, I'll call it. Um, because there's all, all of the challenges of how different, you know, everybody will claim credit, right? Um, so if you pull advertise or you pull reports from multiple platforms and you try to add them all up and make them match your conversion data, uh, you wind up in the situation where you have more conversions coming out of the platform reports than you have total conversions, right? I have a hundred new customers, Facebook saying they got me 70 customers, you know, uh, I don't know. It, 
Instagram's telling me they've got me 30 customers and someone else is telling me they got me 20. I don't have 120 customers. I only have 100. So um, that can be a, a difficult road to navigate sometimes. So, Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I ran into a, an issue more recently with a CRM platform where I think within Meta, I was able to see, and this is, uh, you know, I was able to see something around like 200% of the conversions that we were able to see within the actual CRM platform as well, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously speaks to the, I don't think it necessarily speaks to the, um, I, I don't think that those platforms are, are actively trying to misinterpret the data. I think a lot of times the signals are incorrect, which mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, like it's just that the tracking is off. Sometimes um, it's the look back windows too, though, because yeah. when you, you know, one of the, one of the other challenges I found in just making sure that I've got a whole educational deck that I've built on this. Um, is that, you know, when you think about CRMs, right? CRMs count the conversion at the point of conversion, right? So if I say the conversion activity is submitting a contact form, uh, if I submit that contact form today on November 17th, uh, that's when it's going to show up in my reporting from my CRM. With something like Meta, if I interacted with, a post 14 days ago and clicked on something else today and made that conversion. Meta is going to attribute that to October. Uh, well, I guess 15 days ago wouldn't have been October, but it's going to, it's going to back it up, right? It's going to attribute it to the point that I interacted, not necessarily to the point that I actually converted, uh, which can be incredibly confusing, especially when you start spanning months and you're running reports and you, maybe got conversions from something that's within the look back window, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't always align and there's no way to kind of move those bumpers all the time to make them all line up. Yeah. I think it's, it's super tricky. Um, you know, I think there are so many different ways to talk about attribution that end up getting to like a, it's going to be a a constant iterative process, right? So like there's really never going to be a time where you're like, okay, we've nailed it. We've nailed attribution. It's perfect. We never have to change anything about our dashboard. It's finished and voila, there you have it. Um, I think it's understanding that like you're constantly working with a set of variables that are in flux all the time. Um, I think in order to try to mitigate that, one of the things you can do is try to get down to a source of truth for whatever that particular action or stage in the funnel is, right? So like to your point about last click attribution, um, yeah, agree, really not useful for uh, us trying to gauge whether or not, uh, for example, uh, Bush's Beans drove someone to make a purchase at the at the shelf when they're going to buy a can of beans, for example. Um, but what we do have to put in place is like different parameters to measure what the success of that particular channel was and then hold it accountable for that particular metric, right? So, you know, in, in a really native sense, that would be looking at the KPI that you've established prior to the launch of the campaign for that particular platform and campaign. So like if it's awareness and you're trying to measure ad recall efficiency in meta, or you're trying to measure uh, cost per video view within Pinterest or whatever that might be, holding it accountable for that metric and trying not to get too in the weeds as far as like, how is that driving my bottom line ROI? Or I mean, ultimately you need to know that, but like, how is it impacting ROI directly because you're going to end up with too many variables to a point where you can't trust any of the data that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things, well, a 28 day attribution is back on Meta, which I'm, I don't know if you guys have have been able to use any of that yet, but that's really exciting news for advertisers everywhere. That was gone, you know, since early 2020, I believe it was, or 2021 or whatever it left us, and it's finally back. So that's nice to have. Um, 
I think trying to get a, a better understanding of how it fits in is, you know, oftentimes um, a lot of the brands we work with, we're lucky enough to, to have like a brand lift study portion of that as well, where they're able to use, you know, a lot of different sources and get to the bottom line of like what offline sales impact did this have? For example, on a Bush's Beans, like at the shelf, what's actually happening after we show, you know, we have meta ads in market and Pinterest ads in market. How are those impacting our bottom line sales? Um, I think for smaller advertisers, it's much more tricky and it kind of depends on what you're trying to do from a, from a, um, a, a campaign standpoint overall. So like if you're, that's why one of the things I would tell like a, a really small advertiser is not to try to build brand awareness all the time on meta. And when I say small advertiser, um, I think it's it's all relative, right? But I'm talking like if you're spending less than several thousand dollars a month on uh, your paid social advertising, it doesn't behoove you a ton to run like a, a campaign that's optimized for awareness, right? Because you're competing with really large advertisers, your frequency is going to be fairly low, your ad recall is going to be more difficult as much as it does to maybe save your dollars and try to hedge your bets with users that are already actively engaging by spending those dollars more bottom funnel, if that makes sense. Um, so I would say like try to hold yourself accountable for things that you're able to actively measure, whether that is like a last click attribution from a retargeting campaign where you can say this is actually accurate. Um, or if you're not able to get to a place where you have like these weighted conversions, I'm sure you guys are, are, are familiar with like weighted measurement where you're able to say like, we're going to give this channel X percentage based on recency. Um, if you're not able to do something like that, at least just holding it accountable for that particular media metric at that stage in the funnel. And then beyond that, being realistic about like, what was the value of this, uh, which is where, you know, you get a little bit more sophisticated with like, lifetime customer value and average order value and things like that. Um, but I think, you know, it's a very, it's, it, it's one of those things where you have to work with the set of variables you have access to and constantly iterate until you're at a place where you can at least say, this is the most accurate picture of conversions we can get. And from here, we're willing to say this channel's working, this channel isn't, uh, it, but we're not trying to hold Facebook video ads accountable for bottom line ROI for a high, super high ticket item, you know? Um, if that makes sense, I hope that was helpful. Yeah, <clears throat> I, we're, we're seeing a lot of the same kind of trends on, on our end, you know, and we've talked a little bit around the idea of different advertisers having different needs. Uh, so, you know, what we've been largely talking about is something like in a consumer goods space, you mentioned Bush's beans as an example. Um, if you're a B2B advertiser or if you're an advertiser that has a long consideration cycle that, you know, to your point around that, per, that repurchase window, that looks very different, right? So if you're selling uh, something that takes months or years to make a purchasing decision, that buyer journey looks completely different. How you navigate that looks completely different. How you, how you allocate your funds looks completely different. Ad types you use across these channels look completely different. Um, and same is true with B2B, uh, which sort of mirrors that same sort of long consideration cycle. So talk a little bit about um, the differences that you've seen between something like CPG uh, or something that you have to buy in a grocery store or even DTC online, because you can use kind of some of the same stuff and have some direct, um, direct ways to measure the successful purchasing cycle there um, versus something with a long consideration cycle. Yeah, um, we, this is actually really relevant to the situation that, um, you know, a lot of advertisers are in right now where given the fact that they haven't had that 28 day attribution available for a really long time on those higher ticket items or those, those you know, times where they want to spend a little bit more to get a little bit more, it's really hard to prove the efficacy there. Um, 
the journey largely for like a CPG, Mark, because you mentioned that, like from an advertising planning perspective, we're going to go, if there's not a ton of e-commerce potential, and that's not to say that there's not for a lot of these brands, you know, obviously uh, there are a lot of platforms. Micmac is out there who do a really great job of like trying to get these CPG brands to move into a place where they can order things directly from their phone that you would typically go to the store to get. Um, but largely we would look, you know, again, based on the product, this require quite a bit of research, but off the cuff, typically we would look more upper, maybe a little bit, even more upper middle funnel, uh, based for a lot of these advertisers. And that's because they have typically, you know, really high hold, high, uh, household penetration. So really high brand yep. awareness. Uh, and what's really important for a lot of those brands is to be a constant reminder to pick that product up while you're in the store or that you need that particular thing. And, and there's a pretty clear line between awareness for them and intent to purchase offline or whatever that might be. Whereas a really big ticket item, you have to have, there are so many different variables in place in terms of like how long it's going to take you to convert that person. So having an understanding a, of what your frequency is prior to purchase is really important for media planners because like if we're working with a big ticket item, someone selling uh, some sort of product for $3,000, we can't simply run a Facebook campaign or uh, a campaign on Pinterest or a Twitter campaign or a Snapchat, whatever, a TikTok campaign, and expect that someone's going to make a really large purchase after having seen an ad. Even if you have sequential messaging set up and you're showing them different messages, if they're only if that's only happening on one channel, then it's not an approach that's actually going to, to move that towards a conversion. So I think an omni-channel approach for big ticket items is particularly important. It's important for all, for everyone, right? Everybody should have a media mix that, it, you know, outside of social and what I'm talking about today, like you should always have a really robust media mix if you're able. Um, but I think largely the the things that you're going to look at from a messaging standpoint for a really big ticket item that even if it's like e-commerce capability are going to be a bit more complex. Uh, and to your point, like you need to have uh, parameters in place to be able to track that and the success of those things because the digital footprint is, is even more important for a, a big ticket item, if that makes sense. Well, it goes back to the idea that we were talking about earlier. I think for big ticket items, anything with a long consideration cycle, the emphasis on that 80-20 rule we talked about or four deposits to one withdrawal is so much more relevant and important because you have to you have to remain top of mind for someone that is purchasing something over a long period of time. And if you're too aggressive, I mean, so we've talked about like the the iteration of the idea of content marketing. So before you had this idea that like, everything's gated. You're not getting anything whatsoever. You won't, you have to call me if I'm, if I'm sending you anything. Then you had the idea of inbound, which sort of got it right, but they still wanted to gate more stuff than they should. And now you have sort of this inbound evolution, if you will, that's like, if you can find it somewhere else, I should probably provide it for you also. Otherwise, I won't be the, the content source of relevancy at the time of consideration. I won't be part of that final consideration set. So I know we're talking about advertising, but that, that journey and the, the need to be helpful almost obnoxiously helpful, uh, more so than you are asking for someone's information uh, is, is so much more important for, for a long consideration cycle. Yeah, certainly. I think that's definitely something that we've uh, been talking to a lot of our clients about too, especially the ones where you have, you know, there are times where it's a three to four month consideration cycle for someone who's going to purchase an item that's going to last them 20 years. And also at that point, you run into, you know, a ton of issues around like, well, what what is our next stage with this person, right? So like once we take them through to conversion, what are we trying to get them to do after this? Um, and oftentimes to your point, Mark, that is be helpful. That's like, you need nothing more than to continue to, to sort of nurture that relationship with them so that the next time this pops up or next time they're talking to a friend or whatever, they already know that this brand is a brand that they trust and want to work with again.
Yeah. And then we could go down a whole different rabbit hole, which is sales enablement after the fact, which is a, a black hole to many marketers, right? So we, we did our job. We did all the things we thought we were supposed to do. And now um, I don't know what happened after that, but that's, that's for another yep. podcast, a different day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those kind of conversations have been, they're all over the place and they're, they can get very stressful when you talk about the black box of data. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So let, let's talk, let's circle back to, to content formats and, and more specifically around social, maybe future trends. Um, so in, it, it, there's absolutely no two ways about it. TikTok has changed content consumption and big brands, Meta, um, YouTube, everyone, Twitter, everyone's trying to catch up to the content format of choice and in, in the algorithm that is seemingly gaining more and more traction. Uh, advertisers hope that TikTok gets better at allowing us to use those things, uh, the, the data behind the scenes to be able to advertise because today it's, it's, it's less easy to do than a, than a meta, right? But how have you seen the content consumption trends impact the way that brands are engaging either organically or in, or in paid advertising? Yeah, that's that's something that I think, you know, you kind of touched on content formats. Obviously, I think what we're alluding to there is short form video, right? Yep. So like short form video is it's huge on uh, pretty much every platform. And it all sort of started with TikTok. And then now it's turned into reels and all these different placements that you have to think about when you're planning across different platforms on social as well. Um, I think from a consumption standpoint, we kind of touched on the audience uh, agnostic thing earlier, and that's kind of largely how we would continue to plan, right? So it's like if we if we go to build out our reporting for a particular campaign and we have what's called custom placements across meta, so you have uh, a number of assets that are optimized for the different opportunities for the user to see them. So like you have a story placement for an ad, and then you also have a corresponding in-feed asset that runs for the same part of that ad. And we figure out that stories and reels are really eating up a large majority of that consumption of that budget based on who's engaging. Um, we would typically say, well, then for the next campaign, we need to look, you know, it's iterative. We need, we need to understand that like the next campaign, we should really plan largely on moving towards a short form video based format. I think, you know, one of the places I see both of these things converging is short form creator based content, right? So TikTok largely is already doing that. And I think what you're going to see is that more and more of these platforms and the way that of engagement goes is people are going to be sharing uh, much more content uh, that is, you know, whether that's brand centric content or not, is essentially coming directly from uh, the user themselves. When I say people are really, I meant brands. Brands are going to be sharing more and more content uh, that is either user generated or uh, influencer created. Uh, and I think, you know, the consumption trends all point to short form being sort of the next thing that's going to going to pop and continue to pop. Um, I don't think what's going to happen, though, is that long form will not have a place. So I think like we talked about like long consideration cycles earlier, things like that. Well, there will always be a place for content marketing and really long form video that's much more in the weeds and can get you to an audience member that's really highly qualified. Right. Because like if I'm, I know for myself, if I'm about to do any sort of renovation project. Uh, and I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to, I'm going to struggle with a renovation project myself. But if I'm purchasing something in order to do some sort of renovation project, uh, I'm likely going to uh, do quite a bit of research and try to, oh, are you, are you guys still with me? Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry. I thought it froze up there for a second. Uh, if I'm doing some sort of project or whatever that the circumstances might be, um, I'm going to do a lot of, there's going to be a lot of content consumption. And one thing short form really struggles to do right now is get to that highly qualified long consideration cycle prospect. Um, so I think that the, the, largely the place for short form video will continue to be 
catchy, splashy, top of funnel placements. I think there's a time and a place for it for retargeting and remarketing, for example, where you're reaching people who are, you know, really highly qualified and reminding them to make a purchase. But for the most part, we're going to struggle to have prove efficacy with people who need a little bit more nurture. Um, if we can't figure out a sort of a content formula or a media plan that really speaks to both types of, uh, of prospects, if that makes sense. Um, where are platforms going with the short form content? I think you've seen other platforms either just mimic what TikTok is doing or struggle to catch up and try to come out with some version of that that isn't quite uh, as splashy and as, as catchy, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the other thing that you've seen <clears throat> or that I've, I've noticed is kind of this evolution in short form content, right? It, it started out as um, largely entertainment, I'll call it, right? Um, and they, they've slowly over time, we've added more depth, right? Content creators have been able to create short term, short form content, um, that sometimes maybe is still entertaining, but also is providing relevant information, right? And then going even a step further, um, you know, we're seeing things like search trends. Uh, you see something like TikTok. Uh, start to creep up in terms of where people are searching for information, which is really mm -hmm. crazy. Um, and their search is actually really good, right? The, you know, being able to go on something like TikTok, which is all short form videos and, and search for kind of an ambiguous term um, or something as you would expect to do on something like Google and actually get relevant results with, with short form videos that are related to the topic that you're searching for. Yeah, actually, it's it, it's funny you said that we just had a, a team meeting for our paid social team internally, and we always share some updates and news. And one of the pieces of news that was shared today, I wish I knew the percentage offhand, but um, one of the most valuable marketing skills for paid social advertiser over the next couple of years is expected to be the ability to capitalize on that keyword search for paid social. And that's largely around uh, TikTok functionality. And now, you know, you're gonna be able to target some of those search uh, keywords within TikTok advertising. Um, optimizing your captions, whether that means, you know, people searching actively within Google or searching in the platform for content that's related to that search is becoming a huge portion of what's important for paid social advertising uh, as it becomes more seamless. And I think it's also interesting too, right? Like these audiences interact completely different. And I'm certainly learning that as someone who's kind of interacting now quite a bit with uh, Gen Z on a regular basis at work uh, and just understanding how much different the way that they use some of these platforms is than even myself. And I like to, uh, kid myself and tell myself that we're the same generation, but it's, it's very obvious that we're not when I see the way that they use TikTok and uh, the way that right. I even think about it, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I think your, your point around kind of the, the need for all of them really still reigns true, right? There are, there are a number of things that I'll uh, interact with or maybe even search for on something like TikTok and get kind of some quick hitter information um, that ultimately leads me to go a little bit deeper somewhere else. Right. And I think that's the that's potentially one of the areas that that YouTube might be uh, able to put up a little bit of uh, competition with yeah. YouTube shorts. Right. They're they're really the only platform that has both of both parties. They can do long. Yeah. Long uh, you guys short form oh, content. Sorry about that. You froze up there for a second for me. But um, yeah, I think one of the things. Uh, if there wasn't a need for long form content, especially on YouTube, where I think to your point, that's going to continue to thrive. 
then we wouldn't be sitting here doing a 45 minute podcast to talk about, you know, all the different ways that we can help advertisers and brands with the things that they, uh, that they uh, certainly need to learn about the most. I think like there's always going to be a need for these types of platforms and whether someone gets there from short form content, uh, that's kind of an argument for why you should have a balance of both, right? It's like you have to have the small bite-sized chunks of content and splashy brand to be able to entice someone to come in and learn more about whatever that particular thing that you're doing is. Um, I think YouTube will always have a place and we think of it slightly different outside of like a paid social platform where uh, people are engaging with each other quite as much. I mean, obviously you have the comment sections, which I generally try to avoid, but I think like one of the things that we, we think about from a, from a, um, from a YouTube standpoint, from a planning perspective is a little bit more online video based. And when I say online video, um, if you're familiar with like, you know, buying it in a more programmatic sense, YouTube typically is going to be competing with a lot of those different places than it is more so than, or different platforms than it is typically. I mean, ultimately we're all competing with one another, but that's how we would think about it from a journey standpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I think it makes sense. And, you know, we've talked about the idea in, you know, as, as a, uh, as a, an agency lifer, I'm sure that this phrase will, will hold true for you as well. Uh, and you mentioned the word omnichannel earlier, right? Anytime a brand or an organization, um, can think about the holistic buyer journey and really be invested in, in putting the dollars across the buyer journey so that you can nurture someone down the path. Uh, and, be, and be top of mind and relevant if it's a, if it's a repeat consideration cycle uh, of any kind, whether that's seasonality or whether that's just buying behavior like, you know, uh, I need Bush's baked beans and I'm going to do that at least, you know, three times a year kind of thing based on occasion. Um, you know, whatever that looks like, there's a, such a need to make sure that you're balancing those activities as you're planning. So, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of 2022. So what what advice would you have brands for, for trying to set their marketing budgets going into 2023? What are the you know, trends to watch out for, areas that you could potentially waste your money that may be coming down the pipe, or areas that may be undervalued that maybe you should consider? Yeah, I think there, there are a lot of uh, things to consider, obviously, when you're trying to set your budget. Um, so if we take it from the top there, like the, one of the, the primary things I would try to understand is the scale of your audience. Um, who are you trying to speak to? And there are a million different ways to figure out who that is. If you don't know your customer, you know, I think there's some quite a few ways to sort of do quick research to understand maybe a little bit more about them. But I think for the most part, brands have a general understanding of who they're trying to reach. Um, I would say one of the first things you want to do is try to understand where that scale lies on a different platform. So if you're planning on social, for example, uh, if you're, you know, a small scale um, jewelry retailer, are you, are you kind of spinning your wheels, spinning any time on Twitter versus trying to do something on Pinterest? Uh, and I think most brands have a general saying that like, yes, my audience is not on this platform, they're on that platform. But you should, if you have a budget, you should really try to understand what the scale of that audience is. Because a lot of advertisers want to dip their toes into a platform that really isn't going to do much for them just because they think it's a shiny new thing. And I would yeah. say like, try to tap out the point of diminishing return with whatever platforms you can find the most success on before you try to move into something just because it's shiny and new. We, we like to think about it almost like a bucket approach, right? So you, you fill the bucket into the point of, of saturation or near saturation. To, and to your point, you call it diminishing returns, but visualizing it is kind of easy, right? So if that point of diminishing returns is where the bucket starts overflowing, now I've got some extra, extra water to throw somewhere else, right? 
Um, I've hit that diminishing return approach. Now I can put more exactly. of, of the water into a different bucket and you repeat that process until you run out of buckets or you run out of water, whichever, more likely run out of water. Um, and so, you know, as you think about d- dispersing a budget and figuring out where to where to put your dollars and cents, that's it, it seems to be something that holds that kind of rings true for advertisers. So like, oh, yeah, you're right. I am trying to spread my water too thin across too many buckets. None of them are really full enough to matter. Uh, let's yes. let's think about how we get the maximum approach towards these one, two or three buckets versus the eight or ten that I, I thought I had an appetite for, but I really don't. Yeah. Well, first off, Mark, I love that metaphor and I'm going to steal that. Um, <laughs> that's great. Um, I feel like, you know, th- it all kind of ties back as well to the measurement portion of this. Right. So like understanding the success of that channel is so based on knowing the journey and what was working at each stage in the journey. Um, and having that like sort of frequency understanding to get understand what at what point someone's actually converting is helpful for when you're hitting that point of diminishing return or your buckets overflowing. Um, but I feel like what, yeah, to your point, too many advertisers want to do is spread things really thin because they saw that it's really fun. They can get a splashy placement over here um, before they have an opportunity to really tap out what is going to grow their brand the most. Um, I think one of the things when we look at like a portion of spend over, you know, if we look at an entire client base for an agency, uh, and even if they're pretty paid social heavy, percentages of that particular spin towards one or two platforms are going to be very high. So like most advertisers, if you look at it as a portfolio, are going to spend more dollars across the really big ones like a meta, like you know what TikTok has become. Um, then they are some of the other platforms. It's not to say that there's not a place for them. Um, it's especially, you know, especially in a time where like, and I'm sure we'll, we'll move on to the, the elephant in the room as well here, uh, Elon, like when you have a situation like what's going on with Twitter right now, where it's so much harder for an advertiser to understand the value of what they're getting when they put, um, dollars into that platform right now, specifically, um, that you're not going to see, you know, it's not as, it's not as worthwhile for a brand to test that unless they're just comfortable testing something for the sake of testing it, not for the sake of growing the business. Not to say that people shouldn't go advertise on Twitter, more along the lines of like, just make sure that prior to spending dollars anywhere, there's an appetite for your content and your brand there because it's not behooving any, otherwise you're just kind of screaming into the void. You advertising your product to people who don't need to hear it, who aren't receptive. Like I'm not going to go, I'm sure Sponge Daddy isn't all over LinkedIn. That said, I don't know if anybody's looked at that. (laughs) You can edit this out if he is. But, um, you know, advertising and understanding where your audience is and what those objectives that they're trying to achieve on those platforms are is is much more important than you trying to tell the story because you've been told you're supposed to tell the story somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you have to be relevant where it makes sense. Um, And I think the other, the the kind of buried piece within there uh, as well is kind of understanding what you're trying to get out of it, right? more often than not, the the source, main source of disappointment or confusion or misalignment um, that I see is when KPIs aren't clear, right? Um, and and you're trying to assign whether something was a good spend or or bad uh, after the fact, right? You're not measuring platforms against what they're really good at, right? Um, you know, if, if you're trying to measure a platform that's really great at um, reaching an audience with, you know, eyeballs and ears, um, but not so great with uh, facilitating final conversions, um, but you're measuring against conversion activity, 
you're going to be pretty disappointed. Uh, right. So aligning those KPIs and making sure that you're selecting, being very selective about your, you know, the buckets that you're putting your, your money into, uh, I think is hugely important. Yeah, I think that that kind of connects back to what we were talking about with the the measurement standpoint as well, and understanding the the value of the particular that platform in the journey, and then holding that particular campaign platform, whatever it is that you're doing, accountable for just those particular metrics. Um, there's value in what we would call like a monitored metric, for example. But I think, Ryan, your point is really well made about like, if you're trying to achieve a particular thing, have an idea of what you want to achieve before you ever get to a place where you're retroactively trying to, you know, retrofit the data into the performance that's already happened. And, you know, we certainly see this happen sometimes with brands where we'll run a top funnel campaign. And this is actually something they talked about a fair amount of ad week. And one of the lectures I really appreciated was about holding your uh, media accountable for what your objectives are and then not not trying to you know, muddle, muddle up the data, muddy it up with like, uh, because you're not happy with the result is or because you're trying to do too many things at once. So like an example would be an advertiser at the top of the funnel who's running, you know, a, a campaign based to meant to reach as many po people as possible. So the, the technical objective in the platform being reach, oftentimes you'll work with brands or clients who are really concerned with like the CTR of their reach campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, right. And I think that's that's fairly boilerplate, and I'd say a lot of advertisers have encountered that type of thing. But the education with brands and, and clients, especially upfront, about like that that is not what's going to help your brand grow if it's not the objective that we're seeking to achieve, and it's not going us making a bunch of changes to your creative because your CTR is low at the top of the funnel is not going to help you guys build the awareness, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. So hold yourself, be fair to yourselves by holding yourselves accountable to the thing that you really wanted to achieve. Um, right. there are cases certainly where like CTR does matter, right? Because I think about measurement in terms of, uh, effectiveness and efficiency and typically CTR or, you know, metrics in that, uh, ballpark, which, you know, largely, and I kind of tend to agree with this can be perceived as like vanity metrics, right? Like they're interesting for the sake of what someone clicked, but what value does that have at the, to the end user? But sometimes the point of the campaign is to garner engagement for that particular stage in the funnel. So there's some value in saying like, these are performing well from a vanity metric standpoint. We're not trying to get them to make a purchase directly right now. Um, right. I look at CTR largely as what we would call a, a like a measurement of effectiveness for that particular message, right? Versus something like CPC, where you're looking at the efficiency of that particular message, that particular ad, that particular audience buy. And typically what we would want to see is like a balance between the two where like you're being as effective as possible because that's going to drive your CPC down, right? Because they obviously have a, a related, a relationship as far as how those two correspond. But I'm much more concerned with the efficiency oftentimes than I am the CTR, largely because one thing as a media buyer that we can uh, do a little bit of right now that I think can change uh, is over-engineering our audience base and trying to get to a place where we're actually limiting the the what the auction or the algorithm can tell us because we think we know the audience better because we have persona documents XYZ that say that they're only 18 to 36 or whatever that might be. But what you're figuring out is like so many of these algorithms and, and you know, so many of these platforms have much more dynamic data at their disposal that's telling them the more broad audience you bring to us, the more we are better uh, prepared in order to deliver this metric at an even higher rate than you might anticipate. So I'm okay with sacrificing what I would call an effectiveness stat like CTR in order to drive efficiency down if it means we're still reaching really qualified users. Like, what do I care if somebody who's not in our market sees the ad if it's still hitting more people that will click it 
because we have our targeting very open, if that makes sense. It's definitely the over-optimization. Over-optimization is almost as dangerous as, as under-optimization, right? Yep. Uh, you can potentially limit your pool, your audience pool so tightly that you're ignoring a whole other section that you don't realize exists and is specifically what places like Meta and Google and, you know, everybody has spent billions of dollars uh, building algorithms to optimize your, your placements for, right? Yeah, you're not going to outsmart the algorithm. Even as no. a media buyer, as a planner, you're not going <laughs> to come in with some whopping insight that, I mean, insights are great and I'm all about them. And I think it's important to understand who your audience is and try to use those cross-channel planning. Like, it's great that we can look at, break down an audience. I just, on TikTok earlier today, was looking at like, what other things this audience that was performing really highly was interested in on TikTok. So that in the future, we can say, what can we do from a content creation standpoint to lean into these interests? But I'm not going to limit our targeting in the future to just those interests. Uh, I'm still going to let the let the algorithm tell us each time what is the top performing uh, interest group. Um, I might tailor my content in a way that makes the most sense for that audience, but I'm not going to just sort of uh, cut off my my uh, my hand in spite of my arm or whatever that expression is. Right. So we could obviously spend forever going on these, but uh, let's maybe uh, bring things to a close with the uh, a little bit of time spent talking about the. Uh, current dumpster fire that is twitter <laughs> yeah because uh, it's, it's it's interesting right no matter how you feel about the situation uh there are definitely sparks flying and and lots of things being done um some folks are are probably happy about that some folks are probably not so happy i know you they're you know probably nervousness within brands around well, i know there is nervousness within brands around um whether ad dollars should stay there um, what are, what have you seen? How do you, how do you, uh, what's your personal take on the whole situation? <laughs> yeah, I have to, I have to preface this by saying that this is, you're going to get my personal take, not the take of my employer and not the right. take of anybody else. I, I'm sharing this as, uh, my thoughts and views on the situation. Um, and obviously, you know, I've, uh, we've done a quite a bit of advertising on Twitter, um, spent a lot of dollars with Twitter in the past. We'll continue to do so on all likelihood. I don't see this being a situation yeah. where it'll be entirely useless because, you know, I don't know if you guys were able to join this last week. He did like a, uh, he called, they called it like a round table and yeah, essentially, the, um, shit, what is it called? The, you uh, click the little button and it pops the video up and he talks about, yeah. Yeah. Spaces. Um, is that what that's called? Spaces. spaces, spaces. Yeah. Spaces. yeah <laughs> the whole spaces thing. Yep. Yeah. And it was interesting. I think it, a bit of a lipstick on a pig situation. And, um, also just like he has this incredible way of saying a lot of nothing. So like a lot of it at the end of the day, I was like the, the, at the, the core of what he was saying was a little bit of word salad. I felt like one yeah. of the things I thought was interesting was, um, you know, his point was well made about like, well, ultimately the advertisers will be here if the users are here and if the users leave, then we know we don't have a good product and right. you can't, that's the one thing he said that you're like, well, you can't, there's, I mean, that is accurate. You could say that about you can't really anything. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I do think it's true that like what we'll continue to see is, you know, if the users stay and if the audience on the users we feel like is an audience of people that uh, or, you know, really generally are uh, people that you want to be reaching for a particular brand, then that's where you're going to advertise and spend your dollars. Um, I think, you know, by and large, it's kind of interesting to hear his his vision for what it will become, because. Also, he said this thing about 50% of revenue for Twitter should be subscription-based, 
which kind of messes with your whole ad revenue for you know business model because you start paying typically what you'll see on these platforms is once you pay a subscription fee you don't have to well you're not served ads anymore right because right. that's the big benefit it's like netflix or anything else where once you pay you don't or hulu or whatever those services are where you don't have to pay once you pay you don't get ads anymore which would essentially cut down reach for advertisers in half if he gets 50% of his business model is people who are paying to not you know necessarily have their data shared with advertisers but also not being served ads you're not advertisers it's way less effective for them and in a time when you're trying to convince advertisers to stay on the platform i don't know that that's necessarily something you you know for lack of a no pun intended that you advertise i also am not entirely like convinced that he you know the value of twitter um from an advertising perspective again great for depending on what your product is i'm sure uh, a lot of businesses that especially ones where, you know, you have a really high consideration or long consideration journey with like a product like um, there's a there's a, a reporting software that I'm constantly getting um, ads for on Twitter. And it's got to be the most effective Twitter advertising I've ever seen, because typically Twitter is really great for, you know, what we would call like pre-roll content, top of the funnel content. Um I don't know how how useful it's been from like a shopping perspective. Like I don't foresee Twitter being a platform that's really great for like DTC necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it depends on sort of the client and the business model. But Elon and sort of the, the, this vision that he has for Twitter, um, I think a lot of advertisers are struggling right now to be able to see how that's going to enhance the current experience, which frankly, from an advertiser perspective, hasn't caught up to a lot of the other platforms either. Right. I mean, you're just not seeing the the UI, the usefulness from the, whether it's tracking from your pixel or whatever, like they're already struggling with so many things. And then to put the impetus on the advertiser, that was kind of a funky, that was a weird thing to do, right? Like I know the tweet that was like, advertisers are pulling their dollars because of activists. I was like, what are you going to, what are you going to, are you trying to force advertisers to spend their dollars on your, <laughs> like, that's not how it works. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it, it remains to be seen, you know, transparently, they're not a huge portion of media mix for a, a ton of the businesses that I work with. Um, mm -hmm. And that's being that, you know, here or elsewhere, uh, depending on your, your, your niche, they have a fit in the media mix, but it's, but they're not exactly a meta. And they haven't done themselves any favors with some of the advertising capabilities, um, the targeting, the reporting, uh, reporting things like that. Always have always been pretty atrocious, honestly. Oh man, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's been, and again, it's I don't. Been I, the I, worst. I'm trying to be relatively. Uh, I don't want to speak too poorly of some of the partners <laughs> that you know we use every day, but the 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 Twitter pixel and reporting, and you know, frankly, I'm sure that they would agree has always has always been lacking, and I don't foresee it getting any better under current leadership. Uh, and I don't know how you're going to prioritize the advertiser experience right now when people are leaving your platform and you don't have any employees or engineers that are doing the work that uh, needs to be done in order to to mitigate some of these issues. Um, it's yeah. definitely an interesting situation. And then you layer the, the Twitter blue verification debacle on top of it. Um, and I don't blame brands for being nervous. Uh, yeah. about it or, you know, some of the, the large advertisers, especially the ones that, you know, uh, a lot of their advertising is wrapped up in their brand image, um, making the decision to pause and just kind of, you know, maybe not say, Hey, we're not advertising on Twitter forever, but we want to kind of see what happens here. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it was only a couple of days after the, the launch of the new Twitter blue verification and that, uh, that story is where 
Elon was talking about how, you know, the the new form of Twitter blue with charging $8 was going to cut down on bots and those sorts of things. And, uh, and then you have folks mimicking companies and, uh, and, and tweeting things that have real impacts, right? The Eli Lilly one was a, was a huge one where, you know, you wiped out billions of dollars, uh, of shareholder value, uh, just by way of spending eight bucks and putting a tweet out and sending a tweet. So, you know, I'm, I'm certain that Eli Lilly has probably had some really uncomfortable conversations uh, in, within their, their corporation uh, about Twitter and whether they're going to continue spending dollars there in the short term. Uh, and, you know, it was the next day when the, when the whole Twitter blue verification thing got paused and now they're reworking it and we'll see what comes out of that. I think but, it's like the 29th. It'll be back or something. Is that what they said? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's at, right at the end of the month. So yeah, they said, well, s- we, I don't, I don't think they've, they've been pretty tight lipped on what's going to change, but I think that in addition to some other situations, I think made it super clear that like, this isn't gonna, this isn't going to work for sure. It's, it's certainly entertaining for users, right? I mean, the, uh, watching it as a consumer, as somebody who spends time on Twitter and that audience in, in general is a bit more uh, rambunctious than, than other audiences. Um, but that doesn't yeah, I make think it a great place for advertisers to push their brand messaging and, and exist or a comfortable place, I guess it could still be good. Yeah. I don't like, I feel like the, um, the, are you guys familiar with like Stakeum, the brand that has the Twitter, their like Twitter account is pretty wild and they've done quite a bit. They have had a lot of success leaning into these sorts of like more controversial moments in time or like just mm-hmm. being a complete, like very goofy on Twitter. If you haven't checked out Stakeum's Twitter account, I would definitely recommend it. Um, uh, unless you're a brand like that, that's really willing to lean into the what to like sort of the insanity in order to capitalize on it. I don't see it being a place where like more conservative brands who are trying to uh, protect their image are, are willing to advertise. Um, it, you know, it's about as close. You always hear that expression. It's the wild West when it comes to social platforms, I feel like, and like when TikTok was blowing up, obviously it was, I feel like this is truly the wild West on Twitter right now. It's like, you're seeing a platform that is like, like, you know, before our eyes becoming something entirely different and the way that users are interacting with it, the way people are leaving, I, I would love to see, you know, a month from now, or even after the holidays, when the dust is set a little bit more, like, what that shareholder report looks like, what they're seeing from monthly active users standpoint. I don't, here's the thing that I think. Well, Elon has shared uh, monthly active users screenshots recently well, and they're, they've ticked up. Uh, yeah. Which I found interesting, especially, you know, you have a lot of people talking about leaving. I mean, in my personal network, I've I've had a lot of people talk about leaving, but I've not seen a lot of people leaving. Yeah. In fact, I've seen a lot, kind of the opposite, folks coming to sort of join the party. <laughs> I think one thing that we've, that about like all these platforms really is when they get to a certain reach threshold, it's, it seems very unlikely to me that they disappear. They're definitely not going to disappear overnight. And that these huge users, I mean, you talk about Twitter, even if it's not meta, the amount of sheer volume of users that a platform like that has, I think it would be, it's, it would be a lot harder for Twitter to fail completely than it would to just remain status quo. So I think ultimately, while it seems like this huge 
hugely difficult task is before Elon. He doesn't have to do that many things to be able to maintain sort of the user base he already has. He just has to try to not screw everything up horribly bad, you know, um, which I think he yeah. will see. <laughs> but like I know for me, for example, like my screen time report, we were just talking about that earlier. I spend more time on Twitter than any other platform. Mm-hmm. I am honestly trying to mitigate that given I don't, I'm not a huge Elon fan. Uh, but I also don't know that like, you know, what am I a huge fan of Mark Zuckerberg? Like (laughs) at a certain point, it's, it's a situation where, you know, these platforms are almost too big to fail. And it's, that's why it's so hard to get to that user. Like it's so hard to get to that point. It's all, it's hard to get, it's the same thing as working somewhere where it's hard to get hired. It's hard to get fired. Like it's impossible to build a platform that's that successful. And then he tweets this thing about like firing people who aren't going to be down for going hardcore or whatever i'm like what <laughs> the, the, what are you the doing now with the link yeah there's definitely yeah. some like some crazy stuff that i don't agree with uh yeah yeah that's happened and and will continue to happen but you know as i i think i took a step back to look at it and like hey it's not my company so you know ultimately i care only to the extent that i need to make good recommendations to my clients exactly um, but aside from that, you know, if I if I look at it from a personal perspective, Twitter's been it grew up really fast and it's been pretty stale. And so, you know, some of the the shaking things up and and pulling the company private and you know, uh we're seeing action, right? And one of the things I know Elon tweeted is like, "Hey, Twitter's going to do some stupid stuff over the next few months." And that's 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 true, right? When you think about startups and 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 companies like where Twitter Twitter came from, uh, the whole mantra is fail fast, right? Make you know break, move fast, and break things, um, and that's how you find something that's really successful. And for uh, a social platform that has kind of existed in a mediocre state, uh, yeah, as, it's on the outskirts uh, in in relation to all social platforms. Um, it, that's kind of what needs to be done, right? Uh, in, in the past, being a public company, they could kind of make it along. But I mean, the company was on track to lose about a billion dollars a year. That's a that's a big dumper. Um, so when you pull that company private and you can make unilateral decisions, but you also don't don't have the option of issuing more stock and and kind of propping up a non profitable company, put you in a pretty uh, difficult position where you have to make some really hard decisions really quickly uh, while still wanting to move the platform forward. And, you know, time will tell and we'll see where it goes. Obviously, I would love to see Twitter evolve. I would love to see it still be, you know, a part of the marketing mix and something that exists because I think it does bring uh, something different to the party. Um, Twitter is great for in the moment, you know, so many of our advertisers who need to have like immediate uh, gratification for mm-hmm. like a campaign that's running during the Super Bowl, for example. Um, yep. Those are the opportunities where Twitter really shines. Um, and I think to your point, like as, as long as they can evolve to meet expectations of brands that are like, I would say a large portion, I have to imagine a large portion of the advertisers on Twitter that are at that level that are, you know, Fortune 500 companies are are doing so with a pretty good understanding of where it fits into their media mix already and activating in campaigns in times where they know what the value of that is. Um, 
And I think if they can continue to evolve to to not fall off as the number one source for in the moment news, then they're gonna there's gonna be some success there as well. Like I don't see it again, too big to fail to an extent. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll have yeah, to check back in, in early 2023 and see how right your prediction is, Brian. <laughs> I I think you are right on the surface, just to put you know my flag in the ground as well. I think once you read a, reach a certain uh, volume of user base, you really have to mess up a lot of stuff in order to just wholly fail. Um, yeah, you can. And there has to be another alternative for me to yep. scroll for four hours a night. Like, it, it, well, exactly. And I was, you know, we didn't really get to this trend as part of the conversation, but it's really interesting to think about Twitter's journey because they had one thing right in Vine: the market just wasn't ready for it. Right? Um, the, the technology wasn't ready for it. The the market really wasn't ready for it. Maybe it wasn't exactly the right format, but we just talked about how every social platform is trying to go short short form video. Right? So it'll be interesting to see if they dust TikTok. off. What's that? Vine was basically TikTok. I know it basically was maybe with, you know, TikTok has a better algorithm and better search, but that, that really is it. So it'll be interesting to see if they go back to ideation, ideation they had in the past and see if they can make any new innovations from things that they may have, have had right, but the market timing just wasn't there. Uh, and Vine is, I'm sure only one of many of, of those potential. Um, yeah. Didn't he say something there. about bringing Vine back? They, I was going to say did. they, they talked, yep. he talked about, uh, or, I think maybe put a poll out asking if people want, want them to bring Vine back. And, you know, there's there's probably still a user base that would be really interested in that. Uh, I know he's talked about that. He's talked about uh, long-term, long-form video content almost being like a competitor to YouTube. Um, it, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting place to be as a social platform. And, you know, I think... You hit the nail on the head, though. The relevance to kind of real time, um, real time interactions is really where where Twitter shines and where it plays, and where I think, you know, hey, we're as a part of this conversation, we're talking about uh, things that Elon has tweeted, right? It's it's the only social platform where we can get direct information from the CEO of a company. Um, you know, their sentiments, whether you like it or not. Yeah, they're arguably they're, good or their words, they're, they're everything. Um, there's no other platform like that, right? Everything else is a little more, a little more polished, a little more planned, um, maybe a little more private um, versus Twitter, which is really just kind of like that. We're all sitting in the same room and you can, you can tap into any conversation you want. Uh, based on what you're interested in tuning into at that time or relevance to current events. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I think it's that you're making a very good argument in my mind for the verification process because when you're in the room with everybody else, you need to know who's who to an extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a, a weird idea. Mark and I were actually just talking about that a couple of days ago and I, I actually used the, the uh, stories event um, as a part of it. And, you know, one of the things I'd listened to that. And one of the things that he talked about is how that was going to work and, um, how they, uh, the plan is kind of, you know, Hey, if somebody impersonates your brand, um, we'll ban their account and, and we're going to keep their $8. And, you know, while, uh, trolls and bot farms and those sorts of things may have access to create lots of accounts and they can have access to millions of accounts, they don't have access to millions of credit cards uh, or millions of phones. And at that moment, I was kind of like, hmm, Elon's a very smart guy and he probably does. But that 
statement is one that I would expect from somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience with the black hat market, right? Because the reality is the black hat market does have access to millions of credit cards. And they don't give a shit if you keep your $8 or not, because not their $8. They're stolen credit cards that have been siphoned off, packaged up, and resold to other black hat people who want to use them for nefarious reasons. Yeah. Everybody's had their credit card stolen at one point or another. Those are the guys that are stealing them. And when it comes to even device verification, some of the things like some of the privacy things that Apple has implemented kind of work against us in that case because Apple doesn't expose hardware IDs anymore to applications. It's a it's a separate ID that's generated software side. So now you can kind of reset that ID. Um, so I could think of ways that you could you could build millions of uh, millions of virtual devices as far as Twitter is concerned. And I'm sorry. Disclosure. Ryan has not built any of those applications. <laughs> no, nor yeah. will he. It's but run out of the top of the screen. Yeah, but I'm certain that that's probably what's going through right now. Right, the 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 refab of of the blue verification uh, is obviously eight dollars is not a high enough bar to deter even just your average troll. Um, and it's a bigger problem than I think was anticipated. So now, how do we how do we truly verify? Because I do think it is important. You know that you're not looking at accounts and trying to determine you know which one which one of these is actually the head of national security right right we kind of need to know which one is really the head of national security supplying messages to the masses as to what might be going on or uh or down to a corporation right which one is is pepsi right is pepsi actually saying that coke's better coke is better uh but you know, I, I, it would be weird to me for them to to say something like that, and uh, you know, needing to have an ability to cut through that noise, I think, is is probably more important than was previously thought. It, well, and it has to be as visually um, obvious as the previous system, because yep. the whole issue is that if you're going to pay eight bucks and you get essentially the same type of verification. I mean, it wasn't, it looked a little different, right? It was like a gray check or something instead of a blue check. It didn't. It was exactly the same. The only way to tell the difference between the two, now they've added the official badge back, right? So there's like a little gray check underneath that also says official. Um, But at the time, it was the exact same thing. The only thing that you could do to tell the difference is click on the blue check. I don't even think you could do it on iOS or like on the phone, but... If you clicked on the the blue check, it would pop up and it would say two different descriptions. One would be uh, this user is verified because they're they are a Twitter blue subscriber, and the other one was uh, a description related to the official with a, a link to their verification guidelines. What I found fascinating during that whole period was that their verification guidelines probably still say it, but explicitly called out that there was no there was a very detailed verification process that goes into Twitter blue verification for official accounts and explicitly states that there is no verification process that goes into for Twitter blue subscriptions <laughs> and everybody's and it, what's funny about that too is like this whole idea that everybody is going the people who are looking at that right off the bat are going to go into enough what that like I'm like I'm going to see a tweet from Coca-Cola that says it's like it's time to party 
Like, let's do, I mean, (laughs) yeah. but like, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to see this insane tweet from somebody and then I'm going to go into the, I'm going to click into their profile and click on the, am I supposed to right off the bat understand how, yeah. And it is funny. Bad user process for sure. So let's, and I think, with with other platforms, just to close it, I think it's probably largely mis, you know, not realized how much verification process goes into other things. Like, go try to create a fake Facebook account one time. It's incredibly difficult, super difficult, um, because they want to they want to make sure that as much as possible, most people are real users. And you know, not to say that there aren't bots on other platforms, but. Um, Oh, dude, Facebook has my social security number. I have to, once you start advertising for like, I'm sure you guys might be in the same boat. Like once you hit a certain threshold of advertising or advertise for certain types of brands, they require that you validate your, your own identity. So hopefully they don't, it's pretty nuts. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So to land this plane, we've talked about a whole lot of different stuff. So the first thing we're going to do is check back in early 2023 and, and see if Brian's predictions are correct about Twitter. Uh, but, but by and large, really what we talked a lot about today is we talked about, about uh, knowing who your audience is and that really defines who you, who, where you should be in the social stratosphere, if you will. Most big brands have this on lockdown because their, their old brands have been doing something like this for a long time. But challenger brands, I think, have a harder time figuring that out, whether you're a smaller brand, medium-sized brand, or even a large challenger brand, you don't necessarily have the same level of, of um, validity to where right. you're spending your time and energy in the social, the social space. So I think it's really, um, it, it really is about being authentic in, in today's world, knowing where your audience is, being authentically you. To your point, Brian, if you're a crazy wild brand that, that really should be part of a dumpster fire like Twitter, you should jump into that action like right now. Otherwise, you know, maybe plan your activities a little bit differently. Um, if depending on where your your market marketing position uh, really is in, in in the marketplace. So, Brian, thank you so much for coming on uh, and and spending your your afternoon with us. This has been fantastic. Um, you know, you can reach us online at Oodles of Marketing. Uh, Brian, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Probably uh, finding me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you have something you want to send me a note, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, other than that, if I see you around Cincinnati and I'll, I'll check you out at, uh, at Braxton and OTR, I'll buy you a beer. But uh, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing me on. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely have to check back in here at the beginning of 2023 and see where uh, see where everything landed or lands with uh, with Twitter. So thanks again, guys.